Luke chapter 15 this evening. As you know, we concluded the series A Pace of Grace last week. And so I, I just thought, given the way this service would go and the idea behind this service, I wanted to preach a sermon to our teenagers, but also to you and kind of try to help us understand a real problem that's facing teenagers today in the culture that we live in. Luke chapter 15, verse 11, the Bible says, And he said, A certain man had two sons, and the younger of them said to his father, Father, give me the portion of goods that uh, falleth to me. And he divided unto them his living. And not many days after, the younger son gathered all together and took his journey into a far country, and there wasted his substance with riotous living. And when he had spent all, there arose a mighty famine in that land, and he began to be in want. And he went and joined himself to a citizen of that country, and he sent him into the fields to feed swine. And he would have fain have filled his belly with the husks that the swine did eat, and no man gave unto him. And when he came to himself, he said, How many hired servants of my father's have bread enough and to spare, and I perish with hunger? I will arise and go to my father and will say unto him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and before thee, and am no more worthy to be called thy son. Make me as one of thy hired servants." And he arose and came to his father, but when he was yet a great way off, his father saw him and had compassion and ran and fell on his neck and kissed him. And the son said unto him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and in thy sight, and am no more worthy to be called thy son. Verse 22. But the father said to his servants, Bring forth the best robe and put it on him. And put a ring on his hand and shoes on his feet. And bring hither the fatted calf, and kill it, and let us eat and be merry. For this my son was dead, and is alive again. He was lost, and is found. And they began to be merry. Now his elder son was in the field. And as he came and drew nigh to the house, he heard music and dancing. He called one of the servants and asked what these things meant. And he said unto him, Thy brother is come. And thy father hath killed the fatted calf, because he hath received him safe and sound. Verse 28. And he was angry. It would not go in. Therefore came his father out and entreated him. And he answering said to his father, Lo, these many years do I serve thee, neither transgressed I at any time. Thy commandment, and yet thou never gavest me a kid that I might make merry with my friends. But as soon as this, thy son was come, which hath devoured thy living with harlots, the, thou hast killed for him the fatted calf. And he said unto him, Son, thou art ever with me, and all that I have is thine. It was meet that we should make merry and be glad, for this thy brother was dead and is alive again and was lost and is found. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, thank you so much for this powerful passage of Scripture. And Lord, I pray that I, I, I know I can't do justice to it. Uh, my notes are far uh, inferior to what should be said tonight. So, Lord, I'm asking that your Holy Spirit would help me in a very special and 
and divine way, Lord. I pray that you would lead me in this pulpit. My prayer is that every word I would uh, say behind here would be uh, by direction of you. Lord, I pray that you would help us as we hear this message to understand it through the power of your Holy Spirit. May we be able to decipher it and discern it and what it means to us. I ask in Jesus' name, amen. Let me ask you a question. What is your expectations for our teenagers in our church? What are the goals that you want to see them achieve? What is it that you want to see them accomplish? I think most of the time we place undue pressure on teenagers and act as if they should be more mature than we were at their age. I I personally feel like what we oftentimes bark at our teenagers, we're essentially saying, don't be as dumb as I was. You see, how many of us made mistakes that we regret? And, and for those of us that maybe made mistakes and, and maybe they didn't you know, cult, cultivate themselves into becoming this big mountain uh, of mistakes that we'll have to saddle ourselves with the rest of our life. We, just, we all made mistakes, did we not? Uh, and, and for some of us, our mistakes haunt us even to this day. And, and what we want to do, and I understand every single one of us want to do this, we want to go to our youth department and you want to look right in their eyeball and you want to grab them by the shoulders and you want to say, I've been where you are, don't do what I did. But you did it. And, and frankly, I think it's kind of unfair for us to ask them in a world that is at least as wicked as the one you grew up in, to do things that you so easily fell into. You see, we're losing teenagers at an epidemic rate. It's out of control. Just in my eight years of being youth director, we've had at least 50 teenagers, 50 faithful teenagers in the youth group every year If you just extrapolate that math, that's 400 teenagers at least. And I promise you it's probably much closer to 700 teenagers to 800 teenagers that we've had come through our youth group and had influence on. And yet I can tell you I know where very few of them are and I can tell you even fewer of them are faithfully serving God somewhere. We're losing them at an epidemic rate. You know, it's not just us though. Data from the Southern Baptist Convention reported that they're losing 70 to 88% of their youth after their freshman year of college. 70% of teenagers involved in church youth groups completely stop attending church within two years of their high school graduation. Church attendance drops during the teen and young adult years 54% of teens ages 13 to 15 reported having attended church in the last seven days. 51% of 16 to 17 year olds also reported having attended church in the last seven days. But after this, ages 18 to 29, the number drops to a staggering 32%. And you would expect that the same group of people were polled. 
It drops 20% from the moment they go 17 to 18 years old. What happens? Well, I'll tell you one thought that I have, and I believe this is for sure uh, a problem, is we have taught our, our children uh, commandments and standards and convictions, but we have left out actual Bible knowledge. We have not done a good enough job communicating spiritual and eternal truths and allowing those truths to form convictions in their life as opposed to us just telling them how they should dress, what they should listen to, how they should look. That's a real problem. You say, I don't believe that, Brother Andrew. Well, I know this, that 32% of the young adults that were polled as to why they left church cited this same reason. It was intellectual skepticism or doubt about what they had been taught. Almost a third of every person that leaves church says, I just don't know if what they're teaching is true. 68% of teenagers that have been polled that are Christian, now listen to me, Christian teenagers, 68% of them, say they do not believe that Jesus Christ is the Son of God. Nearly 7 out of every 10 Christian teenagers don't believe that Jesus is the Son of God. If I didn't believe Jesus was the Son of God, I'd be somewhere else this evening. Maybe trying out Brother Sean's fishing lures. (laughs) Because there's no reason to be here if Jesus is not the Son of God. And we wonder why teenagers leave. Well, most of them don't actually believe that Christ is the Son of God. And from that logic, why would you waste time in church if Christ truly is not deity, if He is not God? Why would you waste time here if He's just another man? Seven out of every ten. 51% do not believe that He rose from the dead. 68% do not believe that the Holy Spirit is a real entity. 33% of church youth have said that church will not play a part in their lives, or I'm sorry, will play a part in their lives. One out of every three say that church will play a part in their lives to some degree after they leave home. And this is a real problem. And I'm not here to fix what has been an issue for years. I mean, I would suspect, Dad, based upon your 50 years in ministry, this is not a new revelation that teenagers, after they get old enough to make decisions of their own, they they somewhat, and we call it this, go sow their wild oats. I would imagine that this has been happening for quite a long time. And by the way, I'm not here to necessarily remedy that problem. But what I am here to do is try to tell you Give our teenagers some grace so that when they do come back, which by the way, statistics support that they do come back in most cases. When they do come back, they come to a home that is welcoming and not one that is closed down and judgmental towards their mistakes they've made. I want you to share with me or or study with me just a few things this evening and we'll try to hurry through. I want you to see, oftentimes when you look at the prodigal son's life, there's a lot of criticism that this young man gets, but I want you to see the regrettable error that he made. This regrettable error was no doubt led by his immaturity. You see, the Bible tells us that he had an older brother and the Bible calls him the younger son. And it does not give us an exact age and it really doesn't even give us an approximate age, but we would assume based upon his older brother his being the younger brother, and the way he acts, it sure seems to line up with a 17 to 18-year-old young man. 
It sure, now that this is the way 17 to 18 year old young men are, looking at dad as if dad doesn't know what he's talking about. And I'll, I'll be honest with you, I've been there. Now the good thing is I've always shared an immense amount of respect for my father. I mean, he's kind of a stud at life. I don't know if you know this, but you guys see him in the pulpit. I see him in the garage. You say, what do you mean? I mean, if we have to fix something, my dad's got the tool. And if he doesn't have the tool, he'll make the tool. Then we'll fix the thing and then we'll sell the tool. I'm talking about, I've always respected my dad, but there was even times in my own life when my dad would say things and I, I just, what are you talking about, dad? And now, I, I do not stand up here tonight criticizing him because as, an, as a young adult now, I look at him with even more respect than I've ever had for him. I mean, he's got six kids and they're all involved in church. He must, he's batting a thousand on that. He's doing something right, I would suspect. So I look at him with a great admiration, but I'm saying this. This young man's actions sure seem to align with approximately that age of the 17 to 18 year old man that looks at his dad and is like, Dad, you don't know what you're talking about. You've never been where I've been. You don't know what I'm going through. You can just shut your mouth. That sure seems like the attitude he has. And we wonder why he was tempted to go to the far country. Well, I'll tell you why. He was immature. He was emotionally immature like most 17 to 18 year old young men are. He was certainly spiritually immature. And we criticize teenagers. And, and, but if you fast forward just... Just, I don't know how long, but after he's wasted his living and after he's set in the, in the hog pen and he's sitting there wondering why he's so hungry and he would have feigned to filled his belly with the husks that the, the pigs were eating. He's sitting there as low as it can get. And the Bible says he came to himself. You know what that means? He realized the error in his ways. We criticize teenagers, but we never give them the opportunity to actually realize the error in their ways. And I believe if we could stick a microphone in his face as he's sitting there between pork and chop, he's sitting there, I wonder if you could stick a microphone in his face and say, how you feeling now? He'd probably, with all the tears choking back as much as he could, he would say something like this, I wish I'd never left. You see, this was a regrettable error in his life. And give him just a little development, give him a little maturity, and now looking back, he realizes that he's gone the wrong way. Have you ever been there? Well, I've been there. Realizing that we've made the, 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 the wrong choice, it was certainly led by immaturity. Uh, Solomon says a little bit about this. Ecclesiastes chapter number 11 does not remove the responsibility from a teenager's life of following God. In fact, he says this, Rejoice, O young man, in thy youth. In other words, enjoy your youth. Amen. Let thine heart cheer thee in the days of thy youth and walk in the ways of thine heart. Hey man, if you enjoy doing something, do it. And in the sight of thine eyes, but know thou that for all these things God will bring thee into judgment. 
Solomon is not saying let teenagers go sow their wild oats and, and learn from those mistakes. I believe a church ought to raise a standard, a high standard, and say to teenagers, don't go down the wrong path. There is a way that seemeth right unto man, but the end thereof are the ways of destruction. Don't go there. And I think that we can maybe save some teenagers from making mistakes that we made ourselves. But for those teenagers that do find themselves down that path, Solomon doesn't say, oh yeah, no, don't worry, they're just young. Ah, we just shouldn't worry about them. No, he's saying you understand God's going to bring the end of judgment for it. In fact, he says in Ecclesiastes chapter 12, verse 1, Remember now thy creator, do you all know the rest of the verse? (laughs) Do you all know the rest of the verse? In the days of thy youth, coming from a young man, I am just as much responsible for following fully after my God as this 78-year-old man sitting right over here. It's just as much my choice and it is just as much a commandment from me. And Solomon was saying as much. He says this in Ecclesiastes chapter 12, just a few verses later. He says, let us hear the conclusion of the whole matter. Fear God and keep His commandments, for this is the whole duty of man. And if you read in the passage, he's actually been addressing young men quite a lot. I want to say this, teenagers. It is your responsibility to live for God and walk with God. Your parents cannot do it for you. I cannot do it for you. You must choose to live for God and love God. But I hope you know that if you make one mistake... I am not going to cast you out to the wolves. You see, this was a decision that was led by immaturity. It was also a decision led by ignorance. Now, don't mistake me. Ignorance is not stupidity. We use it that way sometimes. Ignorance is being uninformed, not having the information or accurately evaluating the information. The other day I was driving down the road and there was a cow standing in a green pasture. And I noticed stuff like this because I'm weird and because I very rarely watch the road. But we're going down the road and and there's this cow standing in a lush green field and you would not believe what that cow was doing. He had his head through the fence eating grass that was outside of the pen that he was in. And I thought to myself... So that's what the grass is greener means. The grass is always greener on the other side. You know why the grass is greener on the other side? Because most of the time it's smothered in horse manure. But you you can't explain that to to a teenager sometimes. You know, it's funny that Proverbs does say that. There is a way that seemeth right. And, And what your teenagers are now battling is this what every bone in their body is telling them they should be doing, you're telling them they shouldn't do. There is a way that seemeth right. But we know with experience and maybe a little information, first-hand information, we know and we've experienced that those ways are the ways of destruction. Those, those lead to the paths of destruction. But your teenager is now in this state of almost maturity they're trying to evaluate the information they have on hand and you're saying don't do that don't go there and they're saying but it sure seems right 
And they're wondering who to trust, and oftentimes they don't make the right choice. Sometimes we're led by ignorance. Have you ever made a mistake that you would only ever make once? I've made a couple of those like that. I'll tell you what, here's a mistake you only make once. Running a red light in Burleson. Well, you'll get one of them camera tickets quicker than Dallas, man. If you it quicker than Dallas, like Dallas moves. I figure it moves with the rotation of the earth, I would suspect. But uh, bigger than Dallas and quicker than maybe a rabbit. I don't know what's something that's quick. <laughs> you come up here, babe, if you want to do this. <laughs> you see, you probably don't want to run a red light in Burleson. Here's a lesson you'll learn once and never do again. Ask a lady how far along she is. I don't care how sure you think you are, man. Just don't do it. Just don't do it. Just say something like, you, I would have never guessed you were pregnant. I just thought you were smuggling watermelons. Yeah, that's a mistake you only make once, asking a lady how far along she is. Here's something, and maybe this doesn't, not everybody will get this. I'll tell you, this is a mistake you only make once. Failing to save your Word document. Have you ever done something like that? Boy, I, I had a sermon on my dad. This actually happened to dad the other day. <laughs> dad had his whole sermon typed out. It crashed. Actually, don't feel him too bad a company. Paul Chapel, but Dr. R told me it happened to Paul Chapel the other day. His Easter sermon, deleted, man. He had to do all the research again. Oh, that's terrible. You'll save your Word document if you're a preacher. We're too lazy to make another one. Here's some mistakes you'll only make once. You'll never run a red light after you've done it the first time in Burleson. Asking a lady how far along she is. Failing to save your Word document. I'll tell you this. Now, this is something that I've gleaned from personal experience. You will only ever hold a taco eating contest at Taco Casa one time. Once you do that, you will never want to look at a taco again. The other night in the Spanish uh, uh, family conference, Brother Franco came up to me. He's like, we're having tacos on Saturday night. I'm like, you can count me out. I hope you all enjoy all that you want. Boy, we went to Taco Casa. None of us have recovered yet. That was terrible. I only ate three of them bad boys. We had one girl eat ten, and her dad had to cut her off at that. <laughs> Running red light, asking a lady how far along she is, failing to save your Word document, having a taco eating contest at Taco Casa. And maybe this will apply to some of you men. You'll only ever make this mistake one time. Working with electricity without shutting the breaker off. You would not imagine how... We're like, no, 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 we know what's going on. We, we know how to do this. Sure enough. I'll never forget, we're working out at our ranch, man, and we're working on this water pump. And I, This is actually one of the main reasons I wear this little Kalo ring here. It's rubber instead of metal. We were sitting there working on this water pump, and I'm, I'm down there. Dad doesn't have near as much filling in his fingers as he used to, so I'm working with these small nuts and bolts and trying to get everything right. I'll never forget that hot wire running straight from the house arced out on my ring, on my wedding ring, and it felt like just the biggest, strongest man you've ever met in your life took a sledgehammer and hit me right here in the armpit. And I just, you know, made whatever type of tongue-speaking sound you've ever heard and, uh, and dad, you know, being just all caring and loving, said, what happened? And just began to laugh as loud as he can. 
That's something you only do once. Now, the other day, we were working with a hot wire fence. He's like, just grab onto it, Andrew. I'm like, okay, Captain Leather Gloves, you grab onto it. That's something you only do once. Man, we've made all sorts of mistakes, haven't we? As, as young adults, as adults in this room, made all sorts of mistakes. And, and we understand that wise people learn from the mistakes of others and don't necessarily have to experience trials on their own. But this may surprise you. Not every 15, 16, and 17-year-old makes wise choices. And, and the reason, I'm not giving our teenagers an excuse. What I'm saying is, they ought to be so bathed in the love of Christ while they're here that they know they can always come to Dad's house when things get rough. This was, an, this was certainly a regrettable error that this young man made. I want you to see this, though. I want you to see a resulting displeasure. A resulting displeasure in verse 25, we find a character in this story that is very rarely spoken about. It's actually the older brother, the other brother. And, and this, this, this was the guy who stayed at home with dad. Maybe he was somehow helping dad on the farm. Maybe he was working for dad. We, we actually know that he was coming back from the field. So maybe that's what it was. Maybe he was the guy who got, forgive me for saying it this way, Maybe he was the one that got saddled with taking care of dad while little brother was off living the life he wanted to live. You see what I'm saying? I don't say that with any type of disrespect, but I'm just saying this guy stayed home. In verse 25, we find the, his elder brother was in the field, and as he came and drew nigh to the house, he heard music and dancing, called one of the servants and asked what these things meant. And the servant tells him, your, your younger brother's come home and your dad's killed the fatted calf. And the Bible says, we find here a wrong position. The Bible says in verse 28, and he was angry and would not go in. Can you imagine being angry at someone coming home and getting right with God? It's hard to believe, but I've seen it firsthand. I've seen somebody try to come back and fit into church to only be met with uh, unwelcome looks. To see somebody try fitting in and, and they know there's a, a, an uncomfortable presence every time they come into church. I, I've seen it firsthand. And what happens is, yeah, they make their, sh their fair share of mistakes and everybody knows about them. They're well publicized. But instead of getting the welcoming hand of fellowship, they're met with a backhand. And what's even more sad is as the younger brother wastes his substance on riotous living and now he's coming home to restore the relationship with his father, we find that him coming home has actually put the one young man who should have been right with him the whole time, in a place of severed fellowship with the Father. You said The Bible says he was angry and he would not go in. So what I'm saying is, if our teenagers go out and do some wrong things and make the wrong decisions, when they come back, don't let your attitude towards them put you in a bad place towards your God. Man, I hope our teenagers come back. Do you imagine adding 600 teenagers? Brother Luke, wouldn't you say it's about five, 600 teenagers? Man, and, and even going back beyond those years, man, we had years where we were having 100 people in the youth department before when I was in there and when Brother Luke was in there. 
we've probably ministered to, man, Brother Jim, what do you think? What, what, 7,000 maybe? I mean, can you imagine 7,000 folks that have been taught the love of Christ and hopefully been shown the love of Christ getting back right with God? And you say, it's not possible. Well, with God, all things are possible. Can you imagine that? But I'm afraid if that happened, some of them would come back wanting to function within the body of Christ only to be met like a cancer. Be treated like they're a cancer, like they're an imposter in a church that they grew up in. You say, yeah, well, I've been here the whole time. So was the son. And I want you to notice that the older son was no more right with God than the younger son when the younger son came home. He was angry, would not go in. He had the wrong position. I want you to see, secondly, he had the wrong perspective. Verse 29, the Bible says, And he answering said to his father, Lo, these many years do I serve thee, neither transgressed I at any time thy commandment, and yet never gavest me a kid, and, and that I might make merry with my friends. You see, there's two attitudes he displays here. You can choose which one you think it is. He's either jealous or judgmental. And, and I, I pick up a tone of both of them. He says, Lo, these many years I do serve thee, neither transgressed I at any time thy commandment. It's almost like he's saying, Well, I should have gone off and lived like he lived. I should have gone away and I should have been the one to enjoy the pleasures of sin. And by the way, Christian, the Bible says that there are pleasures in sin for a season. The Bible says that it is enjoyable for a moment. You ask anybody when they hit the jackpot in Las Vegas, you ask anybody when they're partying on some great high or they're buzzed out of their mind, you ask them at that moment whether they're having fun and they'll say, oh, I'm having a lot of fun. Fast forward to the next morning and they're laying there with the biggest hangover they've ever had and they can't even open their eyes for the daylight. Ask them then. And better yet, just ask them what they did last night. They can't remember. Now, there's pleasure in sin, but it's only for a season. And what happens is so often when, when people come back, it's like, yeah, well, I was here serving in the church for 10 years while you were off doing your own thing. Well, good. Congratulations. You stayed right with God. You stayed where you should have been. And instead of getting mad at them for going to live in sin, maybe you should sit there and say, hey, welcome back. Now let's just grab hands and start serving God together. Man, I'm not sure... How sad, it's so sad that we, we, we come to church with jealousies and we just look at people like, oh yeah, look at the sin they're living in. No wonder people think the church is full of hypocrites. Take your Bible to Psalm chapter 73. You say, Brother Andrew, I just don't, I don't get what you're saying. Well, the psalmist did. The psalmist in Psalm 73 goes through the exact attitudes that the older brother did. The only difference is, at one point, the psalmist goes to church. Psalm 73, I want you to read, and we'll start in verse number 1. Uh, probably our, our main text is verse number 3, but the Bible says in verse number 1, Truly God is good to Israel, even to such as are a clean heart. But as for me, my feet were almost gone. My steps had well nigh slipped. And he says this in verse number three. For I was envious at the foolish when I saw the prosperity of the wicked. 
For they're no bands in their death, but their strength is firm. They are not in trouble as other men, neither are they plagued like other men. Do you get the tone? Y'all sense that? There's a little bit of jealousy there. He's like, I don't understand. I'm trying to live for God. I'm trying to do the right thing. There often it seems like everything is going their way. Skip down to verse number 13. The Bible says, Verily I have cleansed my heart in vain and washed my hands in innocency. What's he saying? Why did I try this whole time to live for God? I have, I have kept my heart right with God in vain this entire time. For all the day long have I been plagued and chastened every morning. If I say I will speak thus, behold, I should offend against the generation of thy children. You see, he's, he's mad. He's going through it. He, he's jealous of the wicked and he's envious of the wicked. Now skip over to verse 17. Until I went into the sanctuary of God, then understood I their end. <laughs> He says, surely thou didst set them in slippery places. Thou castest them down in destruction. How are they brought into desolation as in a moment? They're utterly consumed with terrors. As a dream when one awaketh, so, O Lord, when thou awakest, thou shalt despise their image. Thus my heart was grieved, and I was pricked in my reins. So foolish was I and ignorant. I was as a beast before thee. Nevertheless, I am continually with thee. Is that not exactly what the father tells the older son? You've been here the whole time. You've ever been with me. And the psalmist says the exact same thing. Nevertheless, I am continually with thee. Thou hast holden me by my right hand. Thou shalt guide me with thy counsel and afterward receive me to glory. Whom I have in heaven but thee. Uh, and there is none upon earth that I desire beside thee. My flesh and my heart faileth, but God is, my, is the strength of my heart and my portion forever. For lo, they, are, uh, they that are far from thee shall perish. Thou hast destroyed all them that go a-whoring from thee. But it is good for me to draw near to God. I have put my trust in the Lord God that I may declare all thy works. You see, it's not such a foolish thought for us to have these thoughts. But the difference is, for the mature Christian, we ought to come to the point where we recognize anybody that lives their life in sin for any season is a waste of time. They're going to regret the decisions they make. They're eventually going to sit down in the slop of this old world and they're going to look to themselves and they'll say, man, what a waste. What have I been doing? Nobody in this, uh, uh, this hog pen is happy. Nobody in this hog pen is, is, is joyful. I'm going to return and go to my father's house. And that, my friend, is the teenager who's made some mistakes coming back to church. And when they get here, how will they be met? Will they be met with open arms like they were at the father's house? I mean, if you've been here the whole time, you've got to understand, you've been redeeming the time. You've got to understand, God's been using you. God's been working in your heart. How are they going to be met? See, the older brother, he had a wrong position and he had a wrong perspective. See, not only was he a, a little bit jealous, he was judgmental. Verse 30 says this, But as soon as this thy son was come, which hath devoured thy living with harlots... Thou hast killed for him the fatted calf. Did you know if it was not for the older son, 
And him making this statement right here, we wouldn't necessarily know what the, the younger brother did. See, up to this point, all we know is the younger brother wasted his living. And now the older brother says, Yeah, this, this, this harlot, uh, th- th- this, this whoremonger, this guy that went to the far country and spent all your wealth and my wealth, he wasted it all on harlots. Do y'all detect a judgmental tone there just a little bit? I can never believe that he would do that. He was taught better. He was raised better than that. Judgmental. You know, I do believe that uh, Baptist churches like ours that wear shirts and ties to church, sing out of a hymnal, I think we're wrongly labeled to some degree. I think we uh, are given this, uh, this, I don't know, preconceived notion that we do judge hard. That we look down on people for doing things. or what, I, I think it's, uh, I've been to churches like that, but this ain't one of them. I'm thankful it's not. I'm thankful that when people do make mistakes here, they are generally met with open arms. I'm thankful that when people come home and they try to get right with God, we're here to lift them up and not put them back down. And I'm thankful for that. We have to be careful that we never become judgmental towards what others are doing in their life. See, the Bible says it like this, and this is such a powerful verse, Galatians 6.1. Brethren... If a man be overtaken by a fault, I don't know if y'all know the next part, but it says, ye which are spiritual. Well, that's what we need, spiritual Christians. Ye which are spiritual, restore such a one. In the spirit of meekness, and it says this, considering thyself, lest thou also be tempted. You know why when somebody does come back to church, we ought to, lift them up in a spirit of humility and not cast them down in a spirit of judgmentalism. You know why? Because were it for the grace of God, there go I. All it takes is the right temptation on the right day and we'd follow down the same path. And instead of breaking people down when they come home, let us just grab them and love them and nourish them and help them as much as possible. I think that's the church that I want to be a part of. I think preachers said it before, the tr- church is not a trophy case, it's a hospital. People are trying to get better here. People are trying to learn the will of God for them and, and learn how to love God even more today than they did yesterday. That is what the church is. The, the church is not full of putrefied saints. The, the church is, is full of perfecting sinners. It, we're not here just trying to get old and watch the sky for Jesus coming back. We're here to try to do something in the lives of people for the cause of Jesus Christ. You see, he was met with judgmentalism. He was, he was certainly met with a spirit of jealousy. Yeah, he made a, 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 a regretful error. And here what we've studied is a resulting displeasure. But I want you to see thirdly and finally, a repeated mistake. You see, here's what happens. And I maybe you have, but do y'all know that this isn't actually a story of somebody that really existed? It possibly could be because Jesus lived and he knows everything and he's been everywhere at all times. So certainly it could have happened before in time. But in fact, this is the third parable of this chapter. Do you know that? Do you know that 
This is the third parable that Jesus has spoken. I want you to see in verse number one, actually who the parable is being spoken to. Verse number one of chapter 15, the Bible says this, Then drew near unto him all the publicans and sinners for, to hear him. So who's coming to Jesus? Oh, the rotten, the wicked, the sinners, the publicans, those folks. And the Pharisees and the scribes, you all know, know about them Pharisees, right? They have a little bit of history with Jesus. The scribes, the Pharisees thought they were better than everybody else, thought they, thought they could do everything, I mean, thought they had a chrome belly button. I mean, they thought they were just the stuff in religious circles. They thought they were something. And the Pharisees and the scribes murmured, saying, This man, Jesus, receiveth sinners and eateth with them. Now, I would just make a note here. The Pharisees and the scribes, by their accusation, were not necessarily judging the people that were coming back, but by their statement, they're actually judging who Christ spends time with. You with me? When somebody comes into this church and we look at them and say, oh, they're all tatted up. Man, look at the marks of the world on them. You know what? We're, we're not judging them per se. We're saying, how could God do anything for them? That's sad. And now moving on, verse number 3, the Bible says, And he spake this parable unto them, saying, Here's the first parable. What man of you, having an hundred sheep, if he lose one of them, doth not leave the ninety and nine in the wilderness, and go after that which is lost, until he find it? And when he hath found it, he layeth it on his shoulders. Say that next word with me. Ready, go. Rejoicing. And when he cometh home, he called together his friends and, and neighbors, saying unto them, what's that next word there? Rejoice with me, for I have found my sheep which, uh, which was lost. I say unto you that likewise, what's that next word there? Joy shall be in heaven over one sinner that repenteth, more than over ninety and nine just persons which needeth no repentance. You see, the first parable is that of the lost sheep. The shepherd loses one of his hundred sheep. He still has 99, and yet that shepherd takes the time and finds it important enough for him to leave the 99 to go seek out that one which was lost. And the Bible says three different times in this parable alone, he rejoices or has joy because of that one returning home. See, the second parable is found here in verse number 8. Either what woman having ten pieces of silver, if she lose one piece, piece, does not light a candle and sweep the house and seek diligently till she find it. And when she hath found it, she calleth her friends and her neighbors together saying, what's that next word? Rejoice with me for I have found the peace which I had lost. Likewise, I say unto you, there is, what's that next word there? Joy in the presence of the angels of God over one sinner that repentant. Man, if you, if you read through those verses, now those are not the parables that we often speak about here, but can you understand the main passion of this text? You understand what the priority of the text is? If, if the Bible repeats a word over and over and over again, it's trying to emphasize that word. And so far, I believe it is six times we've either heard rejoice or joy. What's it trying to say? It is saying this, that the passion of God is that sinners would repent. 
that people would get right with Him, both in the context of eternal salvation and the sanctified life of a Christian. God's joy is seeing people come back to Him. And you know why the music starts up in heaven? Not for 99 just persons living for God. For the one sinner that comes home. Take note, Christian, do not repeat the same mistake the older brother made. Do not judge, do not criticize. Let us have the passion of God and be joyful when people come back home. You see, there's a repeated mistake. He missed the passion of Christ, but secondly, he missed the point of the story. See, there's uh, three main characters in our story. Number one, the younger brother, and he represents the publicans and the sinners. There's the older brother, and he represents the Pharisees and the scribes. The father, obviously, is a type of God. So what's happened here is Jesus has said the older brother got jealous and a little judgmental because he had been there the whole time, and and that's exactly what the Pharisees had done. They had been serving the religious duties, and they have been trying to live a moral life, and, and there the jealous older brother All the while, these sinners and these publicans that have come to Jesus to hear his message of of eternal hope, they're standing there as the younger brother coming back to the father, wanting to hear words of life. And here's God the father right in the middle, represented by the father in the prodigal son story. Notice this before we close out tonight. I believe this. Neither of these parties were saved. I know that might come as a shock to you. But even if we step further and we say, uh, if it's the type, which is the the Pharisees and the scribes, would you say that many of them guys got saved? In fact, it was actually those men that came together to see Christ killed. And and, and the, the, the sinners and the publicans, they came to Jesus wanting to feel the, the welcoming embrace of the Savior, only to be met with, the, with, with terrible ideas and judgmental attitudes towards them by other supposed Christians. You say, how do you know they weren't saved? Because the only way that these two groups, even in the story, shared any relation to the Father was by birth only and not behavior. See, neither of them was acting like Jesus. Right? You see, being judgmental towards those that are coming back to Christ is no more godly than wasting your life living what, however you want. Both of them are against God. Let me ask you this. How many times do you think the older brother prayed for the younger brother to come home? How many times do you think he asked for prayer requests or... How many times do you think he reached out to him in hopes that he would come back home? How many times do you think it it burdened him and plagued him? And and the way I picture the father is I picture the father out on the front porch with, with, with almost a hopeful expectation that the son would be coming down the road at any moment. And I don't know how you picture it, but that's how I picture it. Every evening, dad just goes, sits on the porch, looking down the road, hoping the younger son would come back. Let me ask you. How many times do you think the older son sat right beside him with the same hopeful expectation? I wouldn't suspect very many. 
Here's my question to you. Our church has asked for fundraisers for years and years and years. You've sent teenagers to youth camp that are not in this service tonight. How many times have you prayed for them? Here's what we do. We just assume they're so far gone, there's no way they'd ever come back. Yeah, they're off living a life. They're off doing their own thing. But what we are doing is we are making the same exact mistake that the older brother made. Oh, he was in the field working, wasn't he? He returned from the field. Maybe you could call that field ministry. Oh, he's doing his duty. But you know what he's not doing? Looking forward to the other son coming home. It may just happen that one day these types of prayers need to be prayed for you or your family member. Sometimes it's funny, my wife and I will, will talk about the youth department as if they're ours. As if they're our children. We'll say something to the effect of, well, we'll go to youth camp and we'll say, yeah, but our kids, our kids, they're just a cut above the rest. I mean, we go to youth camp and I promise you this, even in camps of thousands of teenagers, our teenagers are more mature, both just uh, behaviorally and spiritually. Our teenagers actually know the Bible. Some of them. They ask me questions I don't understand. They ask me stuff that I don't know. You want, <laughs> I don't even want to ask you what they ask me because some of it gets kind of tough. Our teenagers, I'm proud to death of our teenagers. No, all of them aren't. All of them aren't perfect. You were a teenager once too. We talk about them like they're our kids. But here's what I like. I'd like for our church to not only support us financially when we ask for it, but stop treating these teenagers like they're a missionary. And we just write our check and not say prayers for them? Like, we should send them off to youth camp like they need it. And then, well, they're going to make mistakes. It's inevitable. Let me ask you again, what is your expectation for these teenagers? Because sometimes, and I'm not criticizing, but I'm saying this. Sometimes I feel like there's very few of us pulling the rope for them. You say, that's not true, Brother Andrew. Okay, when's the last time you prayed for them? When's the last time you got personally involved? You say, Brother Andrew, I just don't want to infringe on you. I've got... I love it when parents come up to me and say, hey, what can we do for the teenagers? Is there, I, I, I've got parents all the time come up to me and say, hey, can I open up my house for the teenagers? Uh, can, I, can I do something for them? I've got a couple parents that want to come in and give testimonies. Man, I would a lot rather have that parent than the indifferent one that couldn't care less. What are we doing for them? If we cannot reach them with the love of Christ the first time through the youth department... I hope when they return home to dad's house, they get bathed in it the second time.